morning. Morning. morning, Hope. I'm just going to shift uh, the pulpit to the middle so I don't have to break my neck looking around. Is that all right, David? We good? We good. All right. Well, uh, this morning when I was given the task to uh, preach about a month ago or maybe a couple of weeks ago, whenever Tom let me know, um, I had to really think about what I could speak to and encourage the saints about, particularly in the season that I'm in, right? Uh, and for, for where we are now, both personally and I think as a church, um, the providence of God is really acute to me right now uh, for many reasons, including uh, men's muster not too long ago. Uh, Tom discussed the, uh, an idea about spiritual heritage, um, even the last two years with COVID and the implications of that for the local church and the church more broadly. <clears throat> and then my wife and I, we're in a season where uh, I think it's the most dominant doctrine that we think about currently in terms of husband and wife. So th- this is where sort of I'm coming from as to what we'll tackle this morning. Um, but before I do that, I do want to maybe just remind myself, and I'll just pray for our time this morning together, and then we'll get into God's Word. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the deposit of the Holy Spirit amongst the saints in which uh, gives us illumination of the eyes and clears out our ears. We ask, Lord, that as we study your text and as we look closer into the implications of the doctrine of uh, the doctrine of the things of which pleases you, we, we continue to pray and labor of the fact that you are a provider, uh, our Jehovah and, uh, and Jireh. Lord, we, we don't presume anything, but we trust you in all things. For your glory and for your name. Amen. All right. So if you could open your, open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And arguably, for some Christians, this might be the most important text in their lives. Romans chapter 8, verses 28. And I'll just read that. I'm reading from the NASB. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Amen? Now, if you are a Christian, this message is for you. This is a conditional promise to which God gives his covenant people. If you are not a Christian, I'll answer that question later this morning. I want to look at it in three segments, this idea of God's providence. First of all, I want to tackle this idea of how does God view his providence across the Bible? What does he say about himself as it pertains to providing? Number two, I want to look how this passage fits into the throw or the, the, the flow of Romans. I don't have much time, obviously. I only have maybe half an hour, 45. Um, but I'll try to cover as much as I can. Where does Romans 8, 28 fit into the flow of Romans? And then finally, I'm going to attack the text, which hopefully this is where I'll spend most of my time looking at seven particular words in the passage in my translation. Most of you might be reading the ESV or the KJV, but we will work through that and labor through that together. When we think about the word providence, one word where we should see, one one word we should see is provide, provide. And that simply comes from the word, the Latin word, provide. Pro meaning forward, and vede meaning see, so see forward. The first instance where we see this very clearly in the context of the Bible is in Genesis 22, 119. I'll just read that for us. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. In this case, we see that the Hebrew mind only knows a God that sees for the Hebrew mind. We know in this account that Abraham was told to take up his son to sacrifice. But then we also see in this account when Isaac asks, where's the, where's the lamb? And then Abraham's immediate response is, God sees. God sees. And for us, most of us here who grew up in either a developing nation or here out west uh, in Australia, We try to complicate things way too much. We'll try to plan or we'll go, hey, I need X, Y, and Z, Z, X, Y, and Z, Z, and all lined up before I feel comfortable to do something. 
But the implications of the Hebrew mind, and therefore our mind, should be God sees. How comforting is that for the saints? To know that God sees. And therefore, he will provide. These two are not mutually exclusive ideas where God sees, but he sort of goes, I'll wait until they figure out. If they need help, I'll jump in. When God sees, he says he will see it to the utmost end. This is the God that we serve. So in that sense, that's, the, that's where I'm coming from. And if, if you're going to put a label on it, it is very Calvinistic. It is very Augustine. Now, there are other options, but I will argue this morning that any other option to this worldview is it's going to be difficult. You're going to make it really hard for your traversing, sojourning through this life if God doesn't see. So what are the implications? What are some of the teachings in Scripture that we see about God's providence? Number one, again, we're we're taking a 36,000-foot view of what does the Scripture say about God's providence. Number one, God is ruling over the the universe at large. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. That's pretty comprehensive. This is not segments of society. This is not certain parts of history. This is overall. God's sovereignty and his providence rules over the physical world. Job 37, 5 and 10 say, God thunders wondrously with his voice, doing great things which we do not comprehend. One of the questions which I think about is when I get to heaven, and I'm there surrounded by the throngs of angels and the saints and seeing Coram Deo, I'd probably ask, what did you see? What did you see? Verse 10 says of Job 37, from the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of waters is frozen. Matthew 5.45, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil, the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's providence is over the physical world. God's providence, we see, is also over creation. Over creation. In Psalm 104, 21, it says, The young lions roar for their prey, seeking food from their God. You get this idea when you see that National Geographic documentary and the lions is cutting across the desert or wherever it is. In the, uh, I was going to say Amazon, but it's not the Amazon. Kevin knows what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and so you assume this great grandeur and this power and this speed is of the lion itself, but according to the text... The lion is looking for food from its God, their God. On Job, we find it's a measure no longer. I'll just read Job 11.9. Can you find the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? It is it, its measure longer than the earth and broader than the sea. It passes through. He passes through and imprisons and summons the court. Who can turn him back? We'll discuss this idea in Romans later, where God's eternal purpose is effectual for the saint. When he summons you, there's no way you can say no. God's providence over creation. God's providence is also seen through the affairs of nations. Psalm 22, 28 says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. If you're paying attention to current affairs, currently Australia has just signed a pact with India, Great Britain, and the U.S. over a submarine deal. Right? I think Australia is going to get a couple of submarines or three somewhat in the next 10 years, which doesn't make sense to me because if something happens in the next five years, then 
so much for the deal. <clears throat> but that's all to say, for us as believers, we do not become deterred. You know, we don't worry. We don't have anxious thoughts about what's going to happen with my super because we know God sees. God's sovereignty is also seen. His providence is obviously seen, obviously seen also in man's birth and his life. Lot in life, sorry. Psalm 139.16, Your eyes have seen my formless substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there is none of them. God's providence is seen also of the outward success and failures of every man. Every man. We have trouble, well, I have trouble, rather, remembering appointments and meetings I have tomorrow, let alone knowing the success and failures of every man. God's providence is seen in the most accidental and insignificant things. Proverbs 16.33 says, The Lord is cast into the lap, but it's every decision, the every decision is from the Lord. Some of you like playing board games here, which have dice. You roll it. Whatever it lands on, God caused it. Or you might play Scrabble. When I visit my mom and dad, she loves playing Scrabble, hours of the stuff. So I'm like, yeah, let's play. Uh, the point is, when I'm putting my hand in the bag, putting out the letters, seven of them, sometimes I take eight or nine, seven of them, God causes whatever letters I pick out of the bag. And some of us right here, are, we think God is just, is just concerned about the big things in life. But I'm proposing to us this morning that even the most insignificant things he causes, he sees. Even how you got here this morning. The lights that turned red, the speed at which you drove, how much gas was in your car, God sees. Or maybe some of you walked or caught the public transport. God sees. God also shows his providence in and of the protection of the righteous, Psalm 4.8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, have me dwell in safety. Recently we went to Nepal, some of the team went to Nepal last year. Even Tom's injuries included, God kept them safe. God shows his providence in the wants of his people. In the wants of his people, Daniel 8.3 says, And he humbled you and let you go hungry and fed you with the manner which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, in order to make you understand that man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of Yahweh. God shows his providence in giving answers to prayer. First Chronicles 33:13. when he prayed to him, he was moved by him and heard his pleading and brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord alone is God. One of, the, one of the promises that we'll wrestle with and hopefully find real comfort in this morning in Romans is that the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints. And then in verse 28, we find this promise that we're all looking at where God the Father answers the Holy Spirit's prayers. And this is not a prayer meeting every once a week. This is on the clock, minute, second, hour, minute, second, hour. A God that sees. And then finally, we see in the province of God the exposure and punishment of the wicked. Psalm 11:6 says, He will rain coals of fire upon the wicked, and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Our God will not be mocked. Despite all the evil that continues to take place, the suffering and the affliction of the righteous and the unrighteous, our God will not be mocked. He sees. He sees. 
So that's my argument. At 36,000 feet, God proclaims he sees from the most insignificant thing to the glacial, to the Grand Canyon, you name it, between the most smallest thing and the largest or the biggest or the most complex thing you can think of, God sees it all. There's no in-between. There's no degree of seeing. It's either you see or you're blind. And I'm saying if God sees this morning every affliction, every suffering, every disappointment you have had or may be currently in or will continue to have as a saint, God will work it. He has more to lose than we do. So if he doesn't see, he's not God. So a little bit of this morning is to maybe humble ourselves, maybe remind us, maybe something new we might learn about God's providence, but ultimately it is for his glory and how that glory looks as we are made more and more like his son until that day he returns. So that's 36,000 feet. 15,000 feet. How does this passage play in the context of the book of Romans? I don't have all morning to go through Romans 1 to, to 7. But in terms of themes, uh, just as a quick overview, uh, we have the intro, obviously, in Romans 1, 1 to 15. Uh, the theme of righteousness from God. And then in verses 18 to chapter 3 of 20, we see the unrighteousness of all mankind. <coughs> this is Paul's letter, and undoubtedly his masterpiece. In my view right now is Craig and Vic, and uh, Craig of recent time has written a book on, on Paul. This is it. This is the Magna Carta of Paul's work. This is the foundation of the gospel. This is everything that we find solace in, that we find comfort in. Romans. Romans. And so in, in, in chapter 6, uh, once we see the plight of all mankind, um, chapter 5, he, he points to the glory, but he doesn't really give any detail, and we'll know what that detail looks like. Chapter 6, it goes to what you are now. Before chapter 6, you find through 1 through 5, it's what you were. What you were, what you were, what you were. Chapter 6, Paul changes tack and says, this is who you are now. This is who you are now. In chapter 5, we find that justification by faith rescues believers from God's present and future wrath. Chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, we find Christ's obedience overwhelms the effects of Adam's disobedience. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 23, we find the union with Christ's death and resurrection initiates new life. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, we find the union with Christ's death and resurrection frees believers from the law. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, we find the goodness yet inability of the law. Not that the, that the law is incapable, it's that because of our sin, the law is made void, utterly impossible to keep it. And then finally in chapter 8, verses 1 to 39, the first bit, verses 1 to 17, we see Christ's work in the Spirit's power to overcome a sinful flesh. What a promise. And then uh, this latter half, which is what we'll focus on this morning, God's Spirit helps believers cope with suffering as they await their future immortality. How good? You've got justification, glorification. And what Paul will say and labor over us this morning is that it's as good as done. You've got your boarding pass, just wait for the call. Whether in death or whether he comes home, it's as good as done. The future resurrection of believers' bodies, however, is a part of the plan to end suffering, not just for believers, but all creation, in verse 23 of chapter 8. The hope of the believer includes the hope that all creation will be freed from the decay and the death that Adam introduced and that sinful humanity after him perpetuated. 
Don't get this idea that Adam was the one who's at fault or Eve is the one who's at fault. All of us here perpetuate sin. All of us here perpetuate sin. So what's this, what are we getting at here? As I survey the, the room, I see many stories. I see brokenness. I see hurt. I see death. I see loss. I see fathers. I see mothers. I see children, sons and daughters. And in all of those stories, I see suffering. But, there's the but. But, 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 but. Verse 28. But we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But. Although believers are united with the risen Christ, and therefore, like him, are the beloved children of God, this status is not yet visible. The suffering of the world in which believers must live and their own suffering within the world obscure the reality of their adoptive sonship. As believers, we have a tainted view currently of glorification. The reality is that sin still surrounds us. Paul says that flesh is still there. Sin is still there. However, believers have hope that they will one day fully experience their status as God's children. This will happen when God gives them immortal bodies like the immortal body of God's resurrected Son and releases all creation from suffering that human sin has brought in to it. In the meantime... Here's the kicker. God has given his spirit to his people. The spirit assures them that their hope is not misplaced and helps them cope with the trouble. Watch it, that they must face. Not maybe, not sometimes. Believers must face suffering. Now, does that say I'm a sadistic elder? No. I'm a real elder. There are seasons where God grants us plenty, grants us much, grants us profit, gives us seasons of great rest, of abundance. But remember, all comes from the hand of the seeing God. We all know the account of Job, the complaint of Job and his friends. Job turns around quickly and says, do I accept much from him when he gives it to me and not accept it when he takes it away? That is the overview, albeit rushed, of where we find ourselves this morning in chapter 8 and verse 28. And I'll read it again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. For his purposes. Paul describes how God has given his spirit in verses 26 and 27, to his people in difficulties they faced prior to the realization of the hope. The Spirit helps them in many ways, but especially by joining them in intercession to God for the strength that they need to cope with suffering. Paul assures believers of God's intention to glorify them, and in the end, just as he's glorified his son who suffered. This section, this, this portion we're going to argue that all God has done for believers in the past makes their future glorification so certain that they can think of it as in the past. But there's one thing that you walk away from this morning as a believer, as a saint. Your glorification is as good as done. It's done. Live in the future. Live as a citizen of heaven, a citizen of Zion. I, uh, I used to dabble a lot in sport, uh, and uh, 
One of the things that growing up playing competitively is playing your position. Every team member has a specific role for an outcome, whatever that game plan or strategy is. And I would implore all of us, those of us who call on the Lord for salvation and trust him through the eyes of faith, if you are a believer, your glorification is complete. Therefore, making the sufferings and the afflictions of what you face now and in the future insignificant. Insignificant. Play your position. And so finally, we are now at the text. We are now at the text. So I'm going to break it up here in seven chunks. When people ask you how do you eat an elephant, tell them one bite at a time. We've got seven points to make here about the text, and then we will close up this morning. The first word is and. Any English scholars in the room? We all speak English at varying levels. And is a continuation of a thought. If you look down at your Bibles, see the word and. My translation says and. It's a con- Paul is continuing the thought of verses 26 and 27. Note that he says here in verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know. So two verses before that, we don't know. What don't we know? But then in verse 28, he says, and we know. So something's changed. Between not knowing and knowing, something's happened. And the answer is very clearly, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. And so when he intercedes, For us, he's praying what we should be praying. All of us have given that half-hearted prayer where we sort of wake up or lethargic, had a 20-hour shift, and we have to pray. And so we say, thank you, Lord. Amen. Between thank you and amen, the Holy Spirit just fills that up. It's a cannon. Because he knows exactly what God wants us to pray. And, continuing the thought, the reason that all things work together for our good is because the Spirit of God is praying and interceding on our behalf according to the will of God. The Spirit of God knows what the will of the Father is. And so, in suffering... Things get chaotic. An emergency happens, got to take the kid to the hospital. Or like Tom, he has to take himself to the hospital every two weeks. And so we say, pray, pray, pray. And so we pray. But what a comfort we find that the Spirit of God prays the will of God. The answer there is found in verse 28. When things seem chaotic and when they seem to be without fruit, you're laboring, you're praying for someone you love, someone that maybe has walked away from faith or backslidden, you're praying, you're praying, you're praying. What comfort is it to know that the Spirit of God intercedes with you? We often are comforted by others who pray with us and labor over a need or a desire to see more souls come into the kingdom of heaven. And so we implore, we have prayer meetings, we have family meetings, we have too many meetings, in fact. But just to know that the Spirit of God intercedes with us perfectly. Perfectly. Now, we could just stop the sermon right here and all go home blessed, just knowing that. Just to know that truth. We could just stop and go, okay, 20 minutes, we're good. But I might not get up here again if that happens, so we'll continue. First word is and. Second uh, thing we should, second set of words we should recognize, rather, is we know. We know. So Paul has continued his thought from the starting of chapter 8. 
verses particularly 27, 26, and 27, continuing the thought, then that reality that the Spirit prays and intercedes on our behalf, despite of any kind of season we're going through. And then he says, we know. This is Christianity 101. I often joke with the young adults, uh, and when we're having discussions in sort of a public forum, a lot of them will say in their generation, I feel like, I feel like, and then I will quickly shoot back and say, I really don't care how you feel. I do, but I don't. Because what we should see here is the confidence in which the promise is given. We know. Please note the text doesn't say, and we feel. What's wrong when you feel too much? When it's distorted? Feelings are so volatile. It changes from hour to hour, minute to minute. You could be having the greatest day, and then you get a call or a text, and so much for that feeling. So please note it doesn't say, and we feel. Because everything doesn't feel good. Divorce, death, loss of a child, lack of direction, looking for a helper, looking for a prophet, priest, king. And therefore, it's securing to know that Paul doesn't say, and we feel. Rather, he says, and we know. I also want you to look back to your Bibles and see, Paul doesn't say, and we see. Note, he doesn't say, and we see. It is the invisible hand of the providence of the working God that though we do not see, the confidence is that we know he is working, even though we don't see. Imagine if we just ran our lives seeing and trying to understand everything. We do not have the cerebral capabilities to hold a tenth of that information. So Paul says, and we know. That's the confidence that the saint has. He doesn't say, and we feel, nor does he say, and we see. He says with assurity that we should know. That's number two. Number three, to those who love God. And this is where this promise is conditional to God's elect. As I, close out, as I close out the sermon later on, I will talk about whether those of you who do not know God, what are those implications? What does the gospel offer you to those who do not know God? But let's look at the text. To those who know God. God is not working all things together for good for everyone. God is working all things for good for those who love God. This is not a modernist conversation where God holds a referendum and tries to figure out, how do I get everyone to love me? This is not what's happening here. This is not a democracy either. This is explicitly for those who love God. He is only working all things to good for those who love him. A synonym of saving faith. I'll probably just mention as well, for the elect or for the believers, those who love God, If you think that you have to have a degree or a PhD of love, if you think that I have to work my way to a certain of love or level of love, if you think that this love is only when certain things happen and it's more spiritual and when it's not, this is not the love that we're referring to. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 2.9. 1 Corinthians 2.9, to those who love God. Let's 
My translation says, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered into the human heart, all that God has prepared, and I'm going to put an inference in there because I think this is what Paul is proclaiming, all that God has prepared through the gospel for those who love him. This love that we're referring to, the genesis, the conduit, and the end or the destination is fueled by the gospel. This is nothing you and I can produce and sustain for any manner of time that's worth looking at. This is created, sustained, and therefore glorified by the gospel. To those who love God. Let's go to John 10, 14. John 10, 14. And it reads, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Implication of that is, those that know Christ and Christ who knows their people, they love God. So the encouragement from this particular, or these four words, or five words rather, is this is a blanket statement for every believer. If you are a believer, saints, you love God. Again, you might be in seasons of lethargy, that flame might be flickering, almost out. But Paul's implication here is that if you are a believer, you love God. Why I say that is because none of us here love God perfectly. If his righteous demands of the law are for every waking hour to love him perfectly... You ain't, even, you ain't even awake and you haven't loved him perfectly. There's not a certain level that you need to reach as the elect of love. Number four, all things, all things. And we know that God causes all things. When we say all things, we mean comprehensively all things. Comprehensively all things. And some of the ways in which we see that are including directive providence in guiding the course of destiny of the nations, Daniel 2.21. Permissive providence, such as when he allows Satan to assault his elect, i.e. in Job. God permits sin in the world. He doesn't cause sin in the world. Safeguarding providence and protecting his people, as in the day of Daniel and his three friends. I can think of three, three particular times in my life where I missed death by a second or so, less than that. Restraining providence by preventing sin and harm from happening or reaching its full potential, as Calvin would say, in the day of Abraham and Sarah, where Abimelech tried to take Sarah as his concubine. Restraining providence, all things. Limiting providence, such as in stopping Satan from destroying Job's personhood. It often... Um, makes me smile when I, when I look at Job and see in the narrative, Job and his friends don't really bring up Satan. You would think, right, with all the suffering and the affliction, they would look to deploy blame on Satan, but it's never brought up. Because they know it is God who gives and takes and allows. 
That's the limiting providence of the comprehensive scope of all things. And finally, redirecting providence, such as the treachery of Joseph's brothers in provision that would eventually lead to saving many lives, therefore foreshadowing Christ, giving up his life to save the world. One of the things or implications we must think about when we think about all things and its comprehensiveness is the God who causes it all. Why we trust in all things being driven to massage, worked, angled is because God is the one who causes. Some things we should recognize about God is that he is loving. He is loving, and I put here in brackets, perfectly. Perfect love. As a husband, I'm aware of the love of, that I have for my wife. There are seasons where it drops off a little bit. Perfect love. Number two, we should recognize that the God who causes all things is he is all wise. We may have people in our life that love us, but they just may not know what to do. Not only does God love perfectly, but he knows what to do at every instance of life. It's not like that old uncle where the wise uncle that I, I have, I have a couple of them, uh, one, one gone to be with the Lord now, um, and asked him some big questions. And one of his responses, if you got stuck, was, God knows. And sometimes that's the only response one should give as a believer. God knows. God knows. Because he's all wise. God is all-knowing. Nothing surprises God. There are certain views out there that God kind of learns on the way or knows some stuff and doesn't know some stuff. I propose to you that this is not true. Otherwise, it's not worthy of my worship, nor anyone else's. God is all-knowing. Nothing surprises God. And finally, God is all-powerful. It's one thing to love, know, and have wisdom, but if your CV doesn't stack up and you haven't done anything, then what's the point? Rather, if you have a grand view of his love, his wisdom, his all-knowing, and finally, the finality of his power, this is someone that we can trust in, both for this life and the life to come, even in seasons of suffering. All right, let's go to number five, work together. Uh, work together. Uh, notice that this is a present tense. I highlighted this a bit earlier. This means every moment of every day. This is not like in business where I have to, on behalf of the company, submit a BAS statement every quarter. At the end of the financial year, I catch up with all of the statements and receipts. God doesn't just stand there, wait for stuff to happen, and then, okay, I'll catch up. This is an active statement of He's doing that this second. This second. Every second of every day, God is at work. You and I grow tired and weary. God does not sleep. God is not a spectator. This is a statement of fact. What a God. What a God. If you are heading to Brisbane and <clears throat> you pass the, the James Cook Bridge, Brisbane City just opens up, right? And then you head to Mount Cutha, the lookout, it opens up even more. It's almost like that with the doctrine of providence. You think you're just sort of entering into and sounds nice and you're encouraged, but this is a life study both retrospectively and thinking about 
the future. The confidence, the comfort. This is why many saints have said, there's one Bible verse that I look to in all seasons. It is Romans 8, 28. Work together. The convergence of working together. If you think about the, uh, one more illustration, about the, um, those oriental rugs, right? On the back side, it looks like a mess, and it's just all over the place, no color. Doesn't seem to be a flow or a reason as to why things are and where they are. And then you turn it over to the other side, and the intricacy and the design and the beauty, that's how God works. Our mess. So everyone in here should be encouraged, no matter what season you're in or what you will face. He works all of that, creates a masterpiece. Amen, someone. Amen. Number six, for good. For good. What is good? Does it mean being financially rich, physically healthy, socially admired, personally successful, earthly comforts? What good is Paul referring to here? said earlier, God does give good things. He gives seasons of plenty, abundance. But I think it's, it's pretty obvious the good that Paul is referring to here, go back to the text, is found in verse 29. 29. Romans 8, chapter 29. <clears throat> And it reads, for this, for those rather, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Friends, the good that Paul is referring to and reminding us this evening is that we are looking more and more like his son. What a gift. That he would conform us to the image of his son. Is there any greater thing in life than to look more like our Savior? Looking more each day, each waking moment, being conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you're sober enough, you will ask and know that not all things are good. Evil is not good, according to Isaiah 5.20. And I will say at this junction that God is not the author of sin or evil. Not all things are good. I think what the text is saying is God takes all things in our lives, good, bad, evil, neutral, disappointments, heartaches, trials, tragedy, tra tra tragedies, victories, and God, as only God can do, is weaving this tapestry together for the outcome, which is good, looking more and more like his son. Progressively, you and I are becoming more like Christ. And three things I want to just mention as a footnote, which may be helpful for us. If you're still asking, I don't see how God is good when this has happened to me. Three reminders. God causes some things. God allows other things. And finally, God controls all things. God causes some things. God allows other things. But God controls all things. And this is why we can say with James that we consider it all joy when we face various trials. Consider it all joy, friends. Consider it all joy.
And finally, number seven, who are called? Who are called? We noted back earlier, those who love God, that's from a human perspective. Finally, in uh, the end of chapter 8 of verse 28, we find who love God to his eternal purposes. Now we find ourselves God's view or his divine purposes is exactly this. Paul's, Paul ends this word of encouragement with a further description of God's people as those who are called according to his purpose, his eternal purpose. When you come to the junctions or seasons of life where you don't know what's going on, one thing to consider is that there is an eternal purpose to this. Eternal purpose. Paul refers, verse 27, God's people as saints, and the language of calling echoes their designation. The way of life and the goal toward which they are moving separate them from the unbelieving world around them. As God has separated Israel from the surrounding nations so that they might be, Exodus 19, Tom will cover it, they might be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What a purpose. Between justification, the eternal purpose, a glorification is that we might be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Coram Deo. And all of a sudden, our sufferings and our afflictions become really insignificant. Temporary. The plight of humanity, according to verse 28, has a purpose. Sin through one man has a purpose. Life through the other, eternal purpose. So I implore all of us this morning to think about whatever it is, where you've come from, where you're headed, what you're going through difficulties you may have financially or otherwise, interpersonal relationships in marriage, outside marriage. So I survey the room. I, if, I, if I did not read this verse, or if I have not read it before, I would find myself quickly discouraged. Quickly discouraged. But saints, we have much to be thankful for. We have a God who continues after justification. He sanctifies us. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He sends His Holy Spirit, as, as we've learned in Ephesians, as a guarantee. As a guarantee. I think it was chapter 1, verse 11. Paul opens it up to both Jews and Gentiles to say the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the guarantor, which is Christ. We've heard about the unsearchable riches of Christ, the innumerable riches of Christ. We've just looked at one today. So, whether you've run your race, coming to the end of the race and the finish line, you can see it there. Whether you've just started out, I can see your moms holding our babies. This is for us, for those who believe, that God causes all things, works together for those who love him and are called according to his eternal purposes. When we think about life, think about his providence. I'm entering my 40th year around the sun this year, uh, and it's become very quickly apparent to me that I have to reflect on the first 40 years. And I look at the tapestry in which God has weaved his power and his majesty over his kingdom. Can't help but be thankful. Do the same. Do the same. Like the children of Israel. There will be a day 
Deuteronomy where the account is given where the children ask or the sons ask, what about this God that brought you out of Egypt? What about him? And it's our job to proclaim his faithfulness, his providence to our children, to generations to come. Tom touched on chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Ephesians and Pastor Craig's going to do a better job this evening. But the big idea there was God's plan in the new covenant now is through the church. His manifold wisdom, his glory is shown through the church, the bride. And then verse 21 says something really interesting through Christ from generation to generation. That's why we labor over family worship. That's why we consider it important that we're a people of doctrine, of good theology, being confessional, ordinary means, looking out for the needs of others. This is all part of that tapestry of God's providence in which we get to participate in. Right? We're not bystanders in this life. We should never think that, look, I'll just look after my personal salvation and that's what God has come to do. Three points of application before we close. Number one, providence assures us that human history isn't meaningless and out of control. So consider that. This all means something. Because if it doesn't, you've just wasted two hours out of your morning. Number two, be faithful to exercise the responsibility that God has given you. Ones that you are directly aware of and ones that you are indirectly unaware of. Be faithful to your responsibility, friends. Be faithful to your responsibility. Number three, preach to yourself the gospel. Preach to yourself the gospel. An extension of that is those of you who are in this room who are not part of this conditional promise, now is the opportunity. Come to him in faith. Take the free living water, the bread of life that he offers. The double imputation. Take his righteousness. Give him your unrighteousness. So that this grand canyon of a doctrine can keep you safe. This is the fortress which all believers hold to, that he's working everything for those who love him, for his good and eternal purposes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a chasm of, uh, of certainty. We see a buffet of promises. We see your divine hand work in the unseen and, and the seen. We see you work tirelessly you don't sleep, you labor, you give the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the guarantor of Christ and the gospel. You intercede on our behalf. Lord, we throw that phrase around so flippantly, not knowing the depth of which you have kept in that promise. We find surety, we find hope, we find comfort that every affliction and everything that we're going through now is for a purpose, an eternal purpose, to conform us to look more like your son. What a wonder. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the proclamation of the truth in which it saves souls, even from the uttermost. We thank you for this local church. We thank you for all that you've done providentially to keep your bride and to continue to beautify her, making your people look more like your son. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst the saints, for which all of us say, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.